Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 18 is the sermon text. Hear the word of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. We acknowledge that uh, all of it is a revelation of something about you. And so for your, your word to tell us that something is revealed, in one sense is redundant because these things are being revealed to us even as we read them. Uh, but it is good for us to remember what is actually occurring in this transaction. It is indeed revelation. It is God, as it were, speaking from heaven in a way that man is able to comprehend it. Uh, whether he he wishes or no. And so, God, we ask you that we might indeed uh, sit under this revelation and we might take it to heart, even so solemn a truth as this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have seen throughout uh, verses 14 through 17 that there is present a complete thought. Paul says that he is a debtor to preach the gospel both to Greeks and uh, to barbarians, which is his way of saying to everyone, to the wise and the unwise and so forth. And uh, this is because he stands as ready to preach the gospel, verse 15, and that is because the reason he's ready is because he's not ashamed of the gospel. The reason he's not ashamed of the gospel is because it is the power of God and the salvation for all who believe. And the reason it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe is because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is to say, whoever has faith to him, the righteousness of God is revealed as an active justifying principle. In those verses, especially verses 16 and 17, we have something of a summary of the epistle or of the letter to the Romans. But it is interesting to notice, having said this, having stated in essence not only his desire to preach the gospel, but then summarizing the gospel he desired to preach, to notice then the direction that he goes. You would think, perhaps you would do if you were Paul, uh, that he would state, having stated the theme positively, he would then begin to work it out in a positive direction. In other words, having told us about the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel, he would begin to unfold the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But he doesn't do that. Chapter 1, verse 17, he states it, And then he sets it aside until chapter 3, verse 21. That's what I mean when I say it's interesting to notice the direction he goes. He actually begins to state and then to work out the opposite idea. Not justification, but condemnation. The doctrine of the wrath of God. And he does so as the thing which makes the doctrine of justification by faith necessary. In other words, if you were to ask the question... Why then is this the manner of justification by faith in Christ? Why is that the manner by which we are counted righteous in God's court? And why is the power of God made manifest in this particular way and not in another? In answer to those questions, Paul here gives the answer. The answer is simply that man is ungodly and he is unrighteous. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against such things And I think more importantly against such persons that man as a sinner stands under the wrath 
and condemnation of God and the wrath of God is revealed against him. And so as one who is unrighteous, he cannot be justified by anything that he does. His standing before God is one of condemnation, not justification. And it is seeing this truth, the wrath of God, the condemnation of sinners, conclusively that persuades us of our need for justification by faith or the necessity of justification by faith alone. In other words, if you fail to start here as Paul does, to put it as simply as I can, by telling sinners the bad news, they'll never understand or they'll never want the good news. And if you fail to start here as a Christian, I will not wonder that in your understanding of justification, you fall either into the error of antinomianism or legalism. And I will not wonder that your grasp of the gospel of justification is unsound and unbiblical. But should you start here as Paul does with the bad news, then you will see why the gospel is what it is precisely. Namely, the power of God unto salvation to all who believe for in it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith just as it is written. The just shall live by faith. You will never see why that is what it is. Unless you understand the dilemma of man that it is meant to resolve and to answer. Why is it that I as a sinner should be justified by faith in Christ, my Savior and my High Priest? It is because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against me. And so we begin with the statement. And really in this sermon we're just looking at the first half of verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The verse isn't quite finished with that thought, but that's as far as we'll go. And the first thing I want to notice and to appreciate is the structure of the argument. We see that like the other two statements in verses 16 and 17, verse 18 likewise begins with the word for. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, verse 17. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, verse 18. It is clear that Paul is building his argument and the ideas uh, which are presented in succession are linked one after another. And you can't really understand his argument unless you understand how the ideas are linked. And really, I would be among those who argue that verse 18 actually belongs with verses 16 and 17. In other words, verse 18 completes the summary. It completes the thesis. And, and, and the, the exposition, if you will, uh, begins only in verse 19. But Paul, as the preacher, is stating his theme, his doctrine, verses 16, 17, and 18. And then in verse 19, he begins to work it out. And so I am saying that verse 18 actually belongs as part of the great summary and thesis that is stated in verses 16 and 17. But what is the link with verses eight, uh, 17 and 18? Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Well, he's just said again, noting the link between 17 and 16. Verse 17 explains the reason verse 16 is so. The reason the, 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 the gospel is the power of God to salvation is because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. But then verse 18 
becomes the explanation or supplies the reason that verse 17 is true. The reason the gospel of God is the power of God to save, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, is supplied in verse 18. It is because man is unrighteous. And he stands in relation to God, in a relation to God of wrath and condemnation. And it is precisely this dilemma that the gospel proposes to solve. How can man who is subject to wrath and condemnation be saved? In other words, seeing that man is unrighteous and that God will not justify the wicked. Do you remember that from Exodus last week? That's God's own declaration. I will not justify the wicked. Seeing that that is so and I am wicked. How then can I ever find favor and blessing in God's court now that I have sinned and I am wicked? Can it be that God would ever again regard man as fallen, as righteous in his court? Is such a thing possible? Is such a thing conceivable? And this is precisely the mystery that is revealed in the gospel. How man has fallen might be justified by a holy and righteous God. And resume again a station and a standing of favor and blessing with a holy God whom he has offended by his sin. And so again, the relation in the structure is simply this. Verse 18 supplies the reason. It completes the argument. It tells us why God's power is being exercised precisely in this way. Why in it the righteousness of God is revealed. It's because man is unrighteous. That's why. And then beginning in verse 19, he goes on to expound that thought, the wrath of God, uh, until the end, or or, or not the end, but uh, verse 20 of chapter 3. So it's a very lengthy discussion. It's only being introduced here as a conclusion to his summary. But we must also appreciate with regard to the structure, the way both verse 17 and verse 18 emphasize the word revealed. They not only share the word for in common, but they share the word revealed in common. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, verse 17. For the wrath of God is revealed, verse 18. In both statements, Paul is saying that God is revealing something to man. And it's impossible to miss this obvious connection. According to John Murray... The relation of these two ideas, revelation of righteousness, the revelation of wrath, is that of, he he says, an antithesis. The relation they stand to each other is that of opposition. They are opposite ideas. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel on the one side and the wrath of God revealed from heaven on the other. In other words, the revelation of the one is not the revelation of the other. I had almost thought to say... That the righteousness of God is revealed in wrath. But that would be to confuse the ideas when we are meant to separate them. And that is not Paul's point here. Even though in a certain sense it's true. You could say the righteousness of God is revealed in wrath. But that isn't what Paul is saying here. When he speaks of the revelation of the righteousness of God from heaven. In verse 17. His point actually is that the righteousness of God that is revealed in verse 17 in the gospel is the exact opposite of wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed, listen, against me, against me. And that is the exact word Paul uses. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and un- or ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
against. The wrath of God tells me that God himself is against me. He is my enemy. It is revealed against me for the precise reason that I am ungodly and unrighteous. But the revelation of righteousness, the righteousness of God in the gospel, reveals an opposite disposition, a disposition of favor and his desire to save powerfully. It tells me, in other words, that God is not against me, but for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? Romans 8:28. You see how Paul eventually will arrive at that conclusion. God is for the Christian. And so it's obviously a contrast, these two revelations. Or as Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, there is present here in these two verses, I think this is also true, an exact parallel. Verse 17, verse 18, these two revelations. In other words, these two ideas though presented as a contrast, are meant to go together. They're meant to stand side by side. You cannot consider one without the other. And yet, I would immediately uh, ask how many try. How many seek to present the revelation of the righteousness of God from heaven? Apart from the wrath of God, which is revealed from heaven. How many seek to preach the gospel of God in such a way? That sinners are never told the bad news. That they stand guilty and condemned before a righteous and a holy God. You just need to believe and you will be saved. Well, saved from what? The sinner might rightly ask. And so they begin with the gospel, but they never consider what made it necessary in the first place. And they cannot be surprised, or we cannot be surprised rather, when they arrive at a faulty and powerless gospel. A gospel, in other words, that doesn't save. And so the idea here that we're meant to see, as we take verse 18 as the conclusion of the summary stated in verses 16 through 18, is that these two things have both been revealed side by side. The revelation of righteousness and the revelation of wrath. Or if you prefer, and I think you could also rightly say this, that if anything, the wrath comes first. Which is why Paul, in the unfolding of his argument, begins with wrath and not with righteousness. And it is in the context where wrath is being revealed from heaven that the gospel is revealed as an answer to it. In other words, again, you don't begin with the answer. You begin with the problem and then you arrive at the answer and the solution. What is the message of the gospel seen in this way? The message of the gospel as you find, for instance, in John the Baptist's sermon or as you find in the preaching of Jesus Christ or in the preaching of the Apostle Paul or of the prophets And in reality, you see, I'm just saying in the whole of the Bible, the message of the gospel is this, flee from the wrath to come. And it not only tells you to flee from it, but it tells you where to flee. It tells you the method and the manner of escape. It tells you where to run in order that you might find safety forevermore from the wrath of God. That is the message of the gospel. How am I to escape the wrath of God? Seeing that the axe is laid at the very root of the tree, as John says. How am I a sinner to be saved? And so the idea of wrath is essential to the gospel. It supplies the context and the reason for the gospel. The gospel, when it is revealed, is revealed in a setting where God's wrath is being revealed and where sin and misery reign. But having said that, let me then try to define what is meant by wrath. 
When Paul tells us the wrath of God is revealed, what does he mean? Well, let us be honest and say, is there any idea which men talk about less today than the wrath of God? Again, let us just be honest about that. Even in reformed settings, it's hardly ever mentioned. And so when I say men, what I really mean is Christians. It's become fashionable to present the gospel without any mention of the wrath of God. And is it any surprise that men do not see their need for it? Well, again, I think I've already made this clear, but let me make it explicitly clear. The wrath of God describes God's disposition to man as a sinner. It describes his character in action. It is an action of God with respect to man. Wrath of God denotes vengeance, Robert Haldane, or his vengeance. Wrath, of, wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. John Murray, a holy revulsion. Wrath means, let me say again, that God is against me. Wherever it is revealed, the wrath of God, it is revealed in this way as against its object. Or let me put it like this. The wrath of God is God's furious anger with the sinner. His holy determination to punish and to damn the sinner forevermore. Like the gospel, it is not revealed weakly or dimly, but powerfully. And so here, as John Murray also says, wrath must not be emptied of its emotive element. Yes, the wrath of God is not like the wrath of man, but do not think of it as devoid of emotion. There is something dreadful and awful in the wrath of God. It is not a cold, emotionless act of the judge. It is an action of God which is full of anger, power, and fury. I would also add, I think we could say, hatred. It is something which, like all of his actions, reveals his character to us. What is God like? And what is he like to me? Well, it reveals how he feels about sin and the sinner, wrath. And what makes the wrath of God so terrible is that it is not subject to change. God is not angry one moment and then not the next, like man. The whole glory of God is seen in his attributes is that they reveal his own perfect, eternal, and unchanging character. And that is why, beloved, Hell is not a temporary abode, but an eternal one for the sinner. The reason is because God's wrath is not something that is temporary, but permanent and eternal. The wrath of God abides upon those on whom it rests. His wrath against sin persists so long as he exists. And it's because of this that some Christians are hesitant to speak of the wrath of God. Or even I would go further. Some Christians seem to hate the idea of the wrath of God. They don't talk about it. But God's wrath is as much. It is as much a revelation of his character to us as any of his actions and any of his attributes. And so it is as much a reason to praise him and to adore him and to wonder. The glory of God is hereby revealed in all of his actions. Even in his wrath and his vengeance against sin. But at the same time, having said that, we ought to recognize that this doctrine is without question the most solemn and the most terrible thing 
that a sinner could ever be told or considered. Uh, even a Christian, there is something about it which makes us tremble and afraid, if not for ourselves, at least for the unbelieving. Something, again, which is awful and dreadful and terrible about the wrath of God. And I don't think uh, that I'm able quite to live up to this ideal, but uh, I, I just happened to read this week, not in connection with the preparation of the sermon, providentially, Spurgeon saying that a man who can preach the wrath of God without a tear in his eyes is not fit to preach it. Well, I'm not quite there at this moment, but let me just say, Uh, That I agree with Spurgeon that the wrath of God is something that cannot be considered coldly and dryly and academically. What we are recognizing here is the relation that a sinful world stands to a holy God. And that means everybody that I know who isn't a Christian, every family member, every friend who doesn't believe the gospel is subject to this wrath. And if they do not repent and turn to God in faith, then they will be thrown into an unquenchable fire of God's wrath. And what Paul is saying is that this is what God is revealing. It is revealed from heaven, which is basically the same thing as saying of God, the wrath of God. The point is, it's not of man, it's not of this world. The world is subject to wrath. It's not the source of it. God is the source of wrath. Wrath is something that resides in God and that he is expressing to the world. God's disposition of wrath is something he is revealing from heaven. In other words, and this is what we'll go on to see in in future sermons, it isn't something the world is unclear about because God has been unclear about it. But this is something that God has been making clear ever since man fell into sin. It has been revealed. It is being revealed and it will be revealed. And one of the central assertions of this new section, we find it even in verse 18, is that there's no way to miss this obvious truth except by deliberately suppressing the truth. And that's what man does. But God has revealed it with such clarity and force that man is not able to plead ignorance of this fact. If man does not know it, that God's wrath abides upon him. It's only because man was determined not to know it. Or to suppress what he knows. But we also must realize that as this term stands so closely to its prior use in verse 17. I mean revelation. The wrath of God is revealed just as the righteousness of God is revealed. It must obviously carry with it the same force. It isn't just that God is making clear an idea. But as with the righteousness of God. It is an action which God is doing in such a way that it becomes clear and obvious to man. In other words, for God to reveal his wrath from heaven is for him to exercise it. Just as for him to reveal his righteousness from heaven is for him to exercise it in justifying guilty sinners through the gospel. And so when he says the wrath of God is revealed, again, it isn't just... Uh, making clear an idea that was otherwise unclear, but it is wrath in action, the wrath of God. Divine wrath brought to this earth in such a way that man may know it. The reason he knows it is because God is exercising it. And the great point being made here is not simply that the world is being stored up for wrath. It's very hard to find hymns that make this point, by the way. You find hymns about the wrath to come, but that isn't the great point here. 
Paul is actually saying that the wrath of God is already being revealed. It's something already that man sees and knows and experiences from heaven. And so the next obvious question is this. How is it being revealed and where is it being revealed? Well, there's many obvious ways that God reveals his wrath from heaven. And one is by his providence. I'm I'm about to supply seven answers to this question. But the first is this providence that is in the unfolding of man's life in this world under God. There are many indications in man's life that God is against him and that God's wrath is something that is over him and that ultimately which will pour forth ultimately on the last day. The most obvious way that this becomes clear, as we'll see in future sermons, is what Paul says uh, when he says that God gives man over. And man ought to know better that living in such a way is not right and that by living in this way, he'll have to answer the God. Nevertheless, God gives man over to a reprobate mind. Verse 24, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves and so on. To exchange the truth of God for a lie. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. And so on and so forth. That is uh, the main argument I think we'll see in this chapter. Chapter 1. What does God do with a man who is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness? And how does God reveal his wrath to him? In such a way that he's answerable and inexcusable to that wrath. He gives him over. And uh, not to rob uh, some of the thunder from future sermons. But... Can we not obviously see that that is what God is doing today? That we are living in such a time just as Paul was? The wrath of God is revealed thereby. Number two. Another way that God's wrath is revealed is in the conscience of man. The fact that man understands, again, that what he is doing is right. It is his sense of guilt, along with his dread of judgment. Again, the sense that he's answerable to God. Chapter 1, verse 32. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Men know better. How do they know? The conscience. He says something similar in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the thing, the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, which is another way of saying the conscience, the law of the heart is the conscience, their conscience also bearing witness uh, and between themselves, their thoughts and so on. And then there is the law, third, which offers the same exact message. It confirms what man finds in the law, uh, excuse me, in his conscience. And that is the fact that he is guilty and that he's a sinner. And this will become one of the great arguments of this uh, major section. Now we know, verse 19 of chapter 3, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. In the law, the righteousness, or excuse me, the wrath of God is revealed. A fourth way is the curse that was pronounced upon Adam and Eve. And especially in that curse, death. That the the soul that sins shall die. And that's why all of us die. Because death is the wages of sin. 
And death is, let us see, quite clearly a demonstration of the wrath of God. I remember reading Bavink years ago, who had a very scientific mind, and you notice this in his systematic theology, and he said that there isn't a single scientific explanation or rationale for death. There isn't any reason anyone can offer why a living organism should cease to live. Well, there isn't a scientific explanation. Exactly right. It's a religious one. It's that man stands under the wrath of God. And do you understand what God is telling you when someone you love love dies or when you should one day face death yourself? Here is something that has been at work ever since the fall, an inescapable reality for man. The sentence of death which rests upon us all, the wrath of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Don't you see this is something that God is doing? And don't you understand why he is doing it? A fifth way, we see this in the Bible, but you could also look in uh, the history of the world, and that is periodically in history, the wrath of God demonstrates itself in an unmistakable and a remarkable way. Notable and undeniable instances of his wrath. For instance, the flood in Genesis chapters 6 through, through 9. What we discover there is the wrath of God being revealed against this world. Likewise, in, later on in Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah, the rain which fired down or the fire, excuse me, which rained down from heaven, and on and on and on you go. You see it in the life of Israel. You see it in the life of nations. You see it at work in the very nation in which we live. There are five reasons. And these facts taken together are, ought to be conclusive enough. It's amazing that anyone would be in denial as to this fact. When you look at history, when you look at the world today, who could deny it? The wrath of God. Is anything more obvious than that God's wrath is being revealed? That God has subjected the world to futility? Romans chapter 8. But there's two more reasons, or two more ways, excuse me, that he reveals his wrath. And most obviously, and I'm not alone in saying this, I'm not being clever when I say this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven at the cross. Now, we know that the cross is an instance of divine love. Paul will say so many times. It's one of the great themes and arguments of uh, the book of Romans, how the gospel of justification demonstrates conclusively to us the love of God. And that love is seen most clearly and most powerfully at Calvary's Hill. Also, as we know from chapter one, verse 17, and the great idea to be worked out in uh, the gospel or excuse me, the book of Romans, is the righteousness of God, which is revealed at the cross. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and following. But let us see how it is so. How the, how the cross demonstrates the love and the righteousness of God to me, a sinner. Only insofar as Christ there faced the wrath of God for me as my priest and my sacrifice. You see, what God was revealing there on the cross Upon his own dear son. And by revealing I mean exercising. The wrath of God in action. Was his wrath. His hatred and his determination to punish sin. In fact I think we could. uh, We could easily say that there is nothing. That so reveals God's wrath as the cross. Of all the things that we've considered. Nothing as much as the cross. If there were no wrath in God. There would be no cross. But because God's wrath is not negotiable, because God is God and his wrath is inflexible, the cross is necessary for my salvation. How else am I to understand the cross but for this fact, the wrath of God? 
If not for the wrath of God, then I tell you, God might have saved me and he might have saved you in another way. There's no other way for God to be just and the justifier except in this way. Of course, there I see the love of God, but only because I also see his wrath being poured out and being extinguished, not in myself, but in another, even the very son of God. And if God should do this, will he not therefore justify me freely by his grace? If he will go so far as to give up his own son for my salvation, will he not with him freely give me all things? Romans chapter 8. And so you must see wrath there. If you don't see wrath, you won't see anything else. You won't see the love of God. You won't see the righteousness of God. You won't see the power of God. You will never discover or understand the certainty that the gospel conveys to guilty sinners. But then finally and lastly, the the wrath of God is revealed at the final judgment on the last day. What we were singing about in hymns 240 and 241. What John the Baptist was speaking about and what he mistakenly thought was actually upon them in in Matthew chapter 3. The wrath of the last day. There will be a revelation of wrath more terrible still if such a thing were possible. The wrath of God which abounds and abides. And from which there is no escape. And it is against this coming wrath that we are told to flee into the arms of a faithful and powerful and righteous Savior. But again, the real emphasis here is the present aspect. The way the wrath is being revealed presently. And this is what we will see. And so my final point is how this idea is worked out. How it is the wrath of God is being revealed in such a way that man may know it. In chapter three or one verse nineteen through chapter three verse twenty. Again, we're so eager all uh, all of us to get to see how justification works, but that's not how Paul presents his argument. He he introduces the idea in verse seventeen, and then he sets it aside. First, we have to see how condemnation works. Then we'll understand how salvation works. And so here is a brief outline of the coming section. You have the general statement, what we are considering this morning in verse 18. And then you find when he begins to uh, unfold and expound what this means in in verses 19 through 32, that is in the rest of uh, the chapter one, he tells us that the Gentiles are included in this and that they have no excuse, even though they did not possess the law. Nevertheless, they stand condemned. And the wrath of God is such a, revealed to them in such a way that they are rendered inexcusable. Next, Paul tells us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, that it's your deeds that will condemn you. It isn't what you say. It isn't what you think. It isn't what you possess. You might have the law. You might agree with the law. Uh, You might even uh, condemn the other man for breaking the law. None of that will save you. Because it's your deeds that matter. It's your deeds that will condemn you. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You do the same deeds. Verse 6. Speaking of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Verse 12, for as many have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. As many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. And because this is true in the next section, he says the Jews are no different than the Gentiles. Verses 17 through 29 of chapter 2. 
Jew along with the Gentile condemned. Why? Well, he possesses the law, but he doesn't keep the law. And so he stands in the exact same position as the Gentile. Now, that is not to say, he says, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, that there is no advantage in being a Jew. Much in every way, there's still advantage, but not savingly. In the end, verses 9 through 18, it makes no difference with regard to salvation, because salvation is a matter of righteousness, and there isn't a single righteous Jew, there isn't a single righteous Gentile. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seek after God. They've all turned aside, they've all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they've practiced deceit. Their poison, the poison of asps is under their lips. And so on and so forth. This is true of everyone, absolutely. And so he concludes in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every that is to say everyone, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so you see, all of this is meant to make us see our need for the gospel. It doesn't matter who you are, Paul is saying, or what your position is. There's no partiality with God, chapter 2, verse 11. He's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile. What he wants to know is, do you keep the law? And because you don't, the wrath of God is being revealed against you. And this is something that you cannot avoid or escape on your own. You can't redouble your efforts and begin to keep the law and think that I will escape it and justify myself. Because this is true, nothing so concerns you as much as discovering how it is that God himself, the very author of this wrath, proposes that you might escape it. For once I see that I am a sinner and that I am accountable to him, my mouth is stopped, Paul says. It is emptied of every argument and defense. I see my sin. I accept my guilt. What am I to do? And to this, Paul gives the answer. I'll just summarize it. Well, no, I won't. I want to read it. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. This is what I am to do. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth. The Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved for with the heart. One believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for the scripture says whoever believes on him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you see how that answers the dilemma precisely and exactly? There is no distinction Chapter 2, verse 11. There is no partiality with God. All are damned and condemned equally by their disobedience, Jew and Greek alike. But on the other side, whoever calls, it doesn't matter who you are, whoever calls upon the Lord will be saved. That is the message of the gospel, beloved. And to be saved means to be saved from this wrath entirely, completely, perfectly, forever. There is no way To be placed once more under this wrath. Once you've been delivered from it. Which is why Paul says. And I close with this. Speaking of justification. Chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore having been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
or in Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Amen. And let us uh, together come to the table.